Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? My air conditioning, it's its getting hot. I'm in an isotonic thirst quencher steel belted radial sort of frame of mind. I'm uh, I'm doing really well, you know? <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I'm feeling, ex- could not have described it better. That's, that's me too. So things are getting hot over there. Over here, the weather has been ridiculous. We had a hailstorm about a, oh, I don't know, four or five days ago. And I was uh, sitting at my desk playing a video game Uh, my mother was over helping us with the baby and we all heard this noise that sounded like a freight train coming and if you're from oklahoma you Uh know that freight train equals what cyclone tornado bad news that's right so i walked out and there was this roar outside i when i tell you that um i've been through several uh tornadoes but um i'd never heard a roar like that and the reason why is because it wasn't a tornado it was baseball-sized hail that was coming through. So it it rolled through and smashed out car windows and, you know, messed up my screen. And it was just uh, very Oklahoma. It was there. Five minutes later, it was gone. And uh, and that was it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, hail's, hail's not anything to be fooled around with. Definitely not. No. 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 Well, I couldn't help but think if you got caught out in a storm like that, you would be in, in deep trouble. Not good. Well, tell us about the other news. What, what, which news are you talking about? Uh, the new arrival news. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, of course. Yeah, like the biggest thing that's happened in my life, right? Um, well, there yeah. are several angles on that. So you, you you could have been thinking of like, well, which which part of it, you know, what, what, sure. what aspect? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no, thanks for asking. I, uh, oh man, where do I even begin? Um, Gus is here. He's healthy. He's happy relatively. So long as he has milk and sleep and all that good stuff, he likes to be swaddled, uh, does not care for baths, gave him a bath this evening and he expressed his discontent with it. Um, the water was warm and everything. I don't know. I love baths, him, not so much. Um, it was a pretty incredible experience a very harrowing harrowing uh experience as well the birth took 34 hours uh, 32 hours sorry yeah it was quite long um it was an induction and he didn't want to come out so it was uh sort of minute by minute uh sort of touch and go where is the baby uh the dilation has stopped the dilation has begun again um lots of pain on rios's part um no sleep so, you know, it was just still something I think that is being processed. I witnessed the birth. Uh, I was kind of right there. There was a sort of mirror set up so that I could watch the, the head sort of peeking its way out. And then I was standing right there when the baby came out and uh, nearly got hit with a gush of blood and amniotic fluid to which the doctor responded, uh, <laughs> splash zone. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay, well, this is just, of course, this is just Tuesday for her, right? But, um, but no, uh, so the baby came out and uh, it was one of the most insane and incredible things ever. But, you know, what's so fascinating about that is in the lead up to it, you have all these ideas about what kind of emotions you're going to feel when it happens. And frankly, when it was going on, I was, I was completely 
sort of, I think in shock, maybe deadened, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I can't in the moment, I don't know what I felt, but, um, as you mentioned, I, in an earlier conversation that we had privately, I've been sort of writing this stuff down and kind of, kind of in a way sort of creating the memory and, and figuring out how I felt about the whole thing. But it was just, it was the wildest thing I've ever experienced in my life, hands down. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, I, I was thinking of you guys, of course, thinking a lot. And uh, I found, <laughs> uh, God bless my uh, strange um, family, but one of my relatives, um, who was the very early demented brother of my grandmother, so I guess he's my grand uncle. He saved all the headlines from the day I was born from a real weird random selection of, of newspapers around the world. Oh, that's cool. And I found this. I think there are many, but this is the one that, that you know, really got my attention. And I, I start off with a, a portion of my book, Sea Monkeys, with this particular one, because it just makes me wonder. On the day I was born, two sea lions that had arrived in England for a display in Wellington Pier Gardens, managed to escape. A local <laughs> television personality known as the Zoo Man was injured trying to restrain one of the creatures as it, according to him, wiggled its way down the pier to freedom. <laughs> On the same day in Toledo, Ohio, a sea lion that had escaped earlier from a Canadian zoo was recaptured. According to a report in the New York Herald Tribune, officials of the Ontario Zoo were sent to dispatch a plane to take the animal back. But Toledo Zoo director Phil Skeldon, who helped make the capture in a boathouse on Sandusky Bay off Lake Erie, said he wasn't going to give it up. We're going to hold the sea lion, he declared. We caught it in American waters just like you would a fish, except that it's a mammal and we consider it ours. <laughs> it's, that, it's amazing how, I mean, great. I don't know what's going on. I mean, but, on, you know, on the day I was born, it was a big day for sea lions around the world. You know? Man, let me tell you, sea lions are insane. When I would visit Cameron Pierce in Astoria, there would be sea lions on the pier just kind of laying there. And you didn't want to get too close, but sort of watching these things, like you said, you know, wriggle across a pier, you wonder, uh, you know, how did this thing survive <laughs> yeah yeah you know there are sharks out there it doesn't seem particularly fast or smart very cute very very kindly looking things but yeah just a massive blubber sort of moving down the pier but i wonder what that means i wonder if there was some sort of psychic rebellion going on among the sea lions you know whatever the telepathic version of email uh, went out and they all got the memo that it was, you know, time to break those shackles. Well, you have to, th I mean, there has to be something going on with just the sheer, uh, although I don't believe in coincidence and I don't think you do either, the, 
the no. the coexistence in in the same time period of those strange things. I mean, I think it makes you know it raises the question that if we had really amazing magical algorithms, you know, that real aerial view, uh, mm-hmm. which we like that that concept, that aerial view of our lives, which we don't have, would we maybe see some very distinct patterns? that are ours from the get-go, you know? Hmm. Um, hmm. I wonder about that, you know? I, I, uh, I have two questions. I, I've often found that with people, um, the, the new parent moment, there are certainly two parts of life that get instantly reconsidered or considered <laughs> with a new level of depth and, and relevance. One is, of course, evolution. You know, just sheer survival. Mm-hmm. The 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 fact that successful births for humans is is still a relatively recent thing, and it's nothing to take for granted in many parts of the world uh, today. But the other thing which I find really odd, and I've never known what to think about this, um, and from a magic point of view, I've I've given it some time, um, is astrology. What do you mm-hmm. think about that? Did you? in any way tune into the astrological sort of elements involved in Gus's arrival? Oh, definitely. I have a lot of friends who are very accomplished astrologers. Unfortunately, uh, my kind of go-to guy, his name was Isaac. He was a one-eyed mystic who lived in Tucson. Acted as <laughs> an, uh, he was an astrological consultant to the cartels down there. He lived Fantastic. a very interesting life. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, he was he was an interesting guy. He had Ehler Donlos syndrome, which made his skin like uh, crepe paper, and unfortunately made his heart uh, and his other organs similarly um, fragile. Right, and his his brother had it and passed away a few years ago. And unfortunately, almost a year ago today, uh, actually a year and two months, because it would have been March of last year. Unfortunately, he passed away in his sleep. At uh, I believe he was forty two. But he was this amazing guy who, when I met him, he was wearing a fur coat, his eye patch, about like a Mr. T level of gold chains, and he was carrying a small glittery gold uh, coffin in his hands that carried his tarot cards, crystals, and runes, right? So just a full-on mystic weirdo who I would talk to on the phone for hours about my chart and the charts of other people, right? Um... So I don't have him anymore, but I still do have astrological friends. And pretty much as soon as Gus was born, I uh, sent them his his birth time and got all this information back. Um, apparently, there's he's going to be a an argumentative young man. Um, he's going to want to have long discussions with myself and my wife uh, about why we are incorrect in <laughs> in whatever decisions that we make towards him. Uh, he's, um, he's going to have a good sense of fashion. Um, he's well, that's a relief. Be, yeah, quiet, quiet, but creative. Um, so he was a, he was an Aries Taurus cusp. And, you know, when we went in for the induction on April 19th, or I'm sorry, April 18th, rather, he was, uh, going to be an Aries. And then at three 30 in the afternoon, central standard time on the 19th, it would flip over to Taurus. And of course, he wasn't born until April 20th. 
So he's pretty firmly in the Taurus camp, but he is a cusp, right? So I outsource my astrological knowledge um, to people who know things like this. So if you're listening to this and you understand what I mean, but by an Aries Taurus cusp, then you know more than I do. I think Taurus, the bull, so we have stubbornness, I believe. Uh, Stability, uh, determination. Stability. Yeah, and then Aries, right, that's 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 fire. And if he had been an Aries, his mother is a Leo, and I'm a Sagittarius, so that would have been a household of three fire signs. Uh, could only imagine what that would have been. Maybe his delay in birth was for the best in in that respect. But um, so I, I do think about astrology a lot. And to your first point, um, it's so interesting that you brought that up because I have been thinking about the the process since I saw my son come out. I've been thinking about the process of childbirth and just the fact that we've been doing this for millions of years. And frankly, I mean, it seems impossible, right? Um, without the benefit of sort of the technology that we have, um, it could have gone pear-shaped, right? It could have it could have gone a different way. Um, and I know of a lot of people whose births could have gone a different way. But I suppose when you think about the history of these things, that's why uh, I mean the things like stillbirths were were commonplace. Actually, people would have them quite often. Um, but you know, the idea that not only is the birth itself this very precarious uh, thing, but then he comes out and he's an infant, right? He's completely unable to sort of take care of himself and all the things, something as small as, you know, changing his diaper. We have a diaper changing station. We have wipes. We have diapers, obviously. Um, and th thinking about, <laughs> thinking about, <laughs> thinking about in the past, you know, that you would just have this creature that is constantly eating and pooping, uh, without things like washers and dryers. And, you know, uh, we have a little diaper trash can from Arm and Hammer that has a little deodorizer on it. Um, all of the kind of aesthetic niceties of the 21st century um but all those aside just the, the the care of of this this creature it really starts to make you wonder how how we even got to where we are right now it's 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 pretty incredible well it is pretty incredible although you know where we are right now what an interesting and concerning phrase that is I'm, I'm not going to uh, fill you in on this. I'm just going to give you, you've probably already done some looking into this, but it's worth having a look at uh, the famous people, supposedly, whose birthdays were on April 20th or are on April 20th. Hitler. Yes. He's, you know, but here's the interesting thing. Nick, I, I, now that you've mentioned it, I, I didn't want to bring that in. What, mm -hmm. I, what I'm looking at is a remarkable... Uh, glimpse of my relationship to contemporary culture because after Adolf Hitler with the exception of maybe uh, well two artists uh, Ryan O'Neill of all people and Crispin Glover there are so many people here I just have never heard of mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. Gigi Gorgeous uh, who no idea 
yeah. Sabrina Pye, no. Uh, I just, they go on and on and on. I mean, I wonder, I don't know who they are. Right. <laughs> I, who, I just don't have any idea. Well, if my son does have a good sense of fashion and he wants to be an artist for the sake of the world, let's all make sure that he's a successful one. Exactly. Exactly right. You know, <laughs> and and we can make that happen. You know, I think that's a very, very good attitude to have. Ties back into our initiation rights theme. I mean, you can always just, you know, knock, you know, artistic talent on the head if it's not sufficient. Just... Just put the poor soul out of their misery so they don't go on and cause more. So, yes, right. I think that's yeah. a good a good strategy. If you're going to be an artist, mm-hmm. be a bloody good one, you know? That's yeah. it. Yep. But um, other than that, my days have been a kind of time smear. You and I spoke. It's Sunday today. So we've it was it's now been um, 16 days since we recorded our last episode. Yeah. I, I missed you. And I missed you, too. But... It has also just flown by. I have no idea where the time has gone. Because waking and sleeping, you know, you think of, I really like the idea of conceiving of time instead of days. Sort of more like the the Aboriginal people of Australia, you know, thinking about it in terms of sleeps. Um, they're not the only ones who do that, but that's the fir- those are the first peoples that come to mind. Um, but when it comes to having a newborn, sleeps no longer means... Uh, <laughs> What, what it used to mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's this very bizarre thing. I think I've been the most tired that I've ever been in my entire life. Um, and then, it, you know, alternatively, I've been the most awake and alert that I've been, you know. And the, <clears throat> the kind of screaming transition between the two uh, creates this, um, this kind of Pan- not well panicked is the wrong word but definitely heightened state of awareness that's combined with sleep that i think the brain just decides that it's going to stop creating short-term memories <laughs> it's like well, we don't have time for that right now we have to focus on other things so um so while i did miss you and it has been too long uh it feels like we talked a few days ago yeah or was it or was it last year i'm, I'm not sure you know? Yeah, yeah, I understand. Well, I, I think that, you know, time is always, you know, primarily a psychological experience first. You know, there are obviously mm-hmm. other le- levels to it. We mean so many different things about it. And, and that's one of the, the reasons it causes such a problem as a word and a concept, because we do use it interchangeably across so many different kinds of levels, some of them very, very uh, sophisticated in their differences. But finally, I think we all start with, you know, how it feels to us, how it, how it, how it shapes memories in, in the short term, and to what mm-hmm. extent we're conscious of that process. Do we have even time to, to focus on that process as it emerges at all, or is it all hands to the pump, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and you, you know, you, I think that's one of the things when you, you talk to people who have really been through either combat trauma or severe weather disaster trauma they just get burned out to the point where they have to start living back in some kind of manageable present not just this uh hyper sense of urgency that is kind of no time at all you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah well Well, you 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 mentioned memory 
And that's something that I've been thinking of a lot recently. I wrote a blog recent that was called um, Memory is Creativity. And my current thought is that memory is the original and perhaps most important creative act. Because, you know, I think about the the birth itself and how I mentioned that I didn't, um, I didn't feel all the the things that I was expecting in the moment because I was so laser focused on, you know, baby coming out. Is he breathing? Is he, is he crying? You know, is he doing all these things that he's supposed to be doing physically, physiologically? And so now I've been, you know, writing this kind of stuff down. And as I write it down, uh, I think it's a, a blended process of sort of creating how I felt at the time and discovering. And I wonder if those two are really distinguishable, right? So I would personally like to hear your thoughts on, on memory and creativity, specifically in terms of uh, like today when we're on social media and people's memories are shot, you know, they can't, it's not because they're in a heightened state of arousal. It's because you know, they can't remember what they had for dinner yesterday. And is that, is that, is that tied to writer's block? Oh, I think it definitely is. This is something that I'm deeply, deeply involved in uh, right now with uh, the textbook for Rutledge Press, because although it, it covers a lot of different ground and, and, and looks at very specific writing exercises and very focused techniques, but the bigger uh, issue for me is a section which I call the Spiral Mind Notebook. And it's specifically in, related to enhancing cognition in ways that relate to imagination, which I break down into three predicates. Alertness on multiple levels, memory across multiple categories, and the third category is what I call surprise which I kind of like, uh, which includes things like inference, uh, inductive and deductive reasoning, the, ca the capacity for improvisation, et cetera. Um, but memory is the really, is the mid-ground one in the way my presentation of it, but I think it's the link across the board. And I think it's one of the, the least understood cognitive faculties um, because I think there's an argument that it's not a faculty at all. You know, you mm -hmm. take it away and what do you have? Faculty, you know, really presupposes a kind of uh, a model of uh, someone working a computer and it's a software program that they're engaging. Well, mm -hmm. that, that's, not, that's not right at all. Memory is much more fundamental than that. And I think you're absolutely right that it is essentially a creative, not retentive act. I mean, we retain fluids, we retain toxins, uh, maybe we save money. There are lots of things that we save and conserve and, and use those uh, metaphorical frames going back to George Lakoff and Mark Johnson's, you know, the idea of the metaphors we live by. But I don't think that that's at all appropriate to memory. I think this idea of, of storing things, you know, in some sort of big attic or a memory palace, you know, Giordano <laughs> Bruno gave us the idea of the memory palace. And a lot of people are doing, that's kind of been resurrected as an idea in the memory field. Um, and I use it. I have a memory trailer. I have an Airstream trailer. Um, mm -hmm. And mine actually opens up to another dimension of enormous, uh, like there are swamps and forests and farms and a mansion full mm -hmm. of museum galleries and stuff. So I, I, mm -hmm. I, you know, 
I have it both ways. I, I have a mansion on. I have a mansion on the beach. Yeah. There you same, go. Same, there same you thing. go. Mm-hmm. So all of those, you know, all of those things are, are relevant, but they only focus on certain aspects of memory, and they really don't address that experiential, psychological immersion in life quality. Um, because I mean, me- remembering a fact, you know, like when the Civil War ended is very different than, than being able to really know what you had for dinner three nights ago. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's on an, it's not only just on a different level, it's, it, I don't even know how it can be called the same, under the same rubric of memory. You know, I just, right. that doesn't really right. work for me. I think that's, you know, when, when things become too stretchy and uh, fluid and loose, then they're not really holding anything in. They're not really, yeah. really. And I think that's one of our problems with the idea of memory, that it uh, it simply is too vast and stretchy an idea to really be managed. And so we have to break that down in different ways. We have to do it for ourselves. I think a lot of the great writing uh, that we look to over time and the reason why it survives in time is that it's it's first of all they're interesting meditations on uh, the experience of memory and their expressions and performances of memory. They're often memory palaces themselves. You know, you think right. of the really right. great works that that come down to us, and often in um, you know kind of wonderful deceptive ways. You know, the Thousand and One Nights. Uh, you know, the Arabian night cycle, which brings together uh, Indian, Persian, and Arab culture traditions. They're basic folk tales. But, geez, there's so much going on within those in terms of uh, snapshots of life, snapshots mm-hmm. of human nature. Uh, they're, they're richly documentary in nature, mm-hmm. you know. Right. And without that, we wouldn't have had so much in pre-photography. Think, what would we really have, you know? Exactly, exactly. Um, thinking about the, the Memory Palace um, made me think of a book that I'm reading right now. I'm reading Gene Wolfe's uh, Book of the New Sun, his uh, classic sci-fi fantasy epic, right? Right. And the first book is called The Shadow of the Torturer. So the main character is a person, uh, he's a torturer in the, in the far, 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 far future, uh, part of a guild of torturers uh, whose job it is to sort of punish the, the condemned. And uh, he claims to have a perfect memory, right? So he can remember everything. And early on in the first book, which is called The Shadow of the Torturer, he says this, We believe that we invent symbols. Truth is that they invent us. We are their creatures, shaped by their hard, defining edges. When soldiers take their oath, they are given a coin, an asimi stamped with the profile of the autark. Their acceptance of that coin is their acceptance of the special duties and burdens of military life. They are soldiers from that moment, though they may know nothing of the management of arms. I did not know that then, but it is a profound mistake to believe that we must know of such things to be influenced by them. And in fact, to believe so is to believe in the most debased and superstitious kind of magic. The would-be sorcerer alone has faith in the efficacy of pure knowledge. Rational people know that things act of themselves or not at all. So I like that because it makes me think instead of us, 
creating memory palaces, you know, that your Airstream and my mansion already existed, right? And we, and we found them. I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, when, when some people hear that, and some of my further extensions on the nature of language, they, they always think of that in very mystical terms, as if some metaphysical sort of concept has been created. And I don't think that's true at all. I think that, that really it, it just is a break with the linear nature of time and the classic binary of, of cause and effect. You know, that, that, and we see that in, in quantum mechanics. We've had a lot of different frames now to break with that very old and tired way of thinking that, that somehow we are the creators, the inventors rather than discoverers. I mean, that's, that uh, dichotomy has always seemed very, very false to me. I mean, I think you can be both, but I certainly think you can also be the object as well as the, the, the subject of something, and that, that we are, in a, in a sense, being created by our symbol systems. Um, you know, Niels Bohr is about as hard-headed and practical-minded a, a physicist as we ever had, you know, said, we are suspended in language and therefore symbol mm -hmm. systems, and, and therefore the larger idea of memory. Mm -hmm. Because what mm -hmm. is memory other than that? And I think that's so true that fortunately we have some navigation capabilities. That's the way I look at it. Mm -hmm. Rather than sort mm -hmm. of resenting that we're not the originators of all of this, I'm getting to a point in my life where I think it's kind of nice not to, you know, what I'm not creating and responsible for because yeah, I feel like I yeah. got enough responsibility. I like to think that maybe I'm just muddling along as best I can. <laughs> and it's the old rafting drill. You know, when you're at, mm -hmm. at some point, everyone's going to get out of the raft and you're going to be in the worst possible situation. So you remember the drill, keep your head up, be on the lookout, ride the thing out. Do not necessarily just, try to get to the bank at the first go that may not be the wise idea ride the momentum out um but just try to keep some you know bones from being broken or your head smashed in you know that's why yep. you wear a helmet you know but mm -hmm. keep keep your eyes looking around and that's maybe the best that we can do you know it's yeah um, yeah we're done we're done creating and we're just going to notice things from now on um well, on that note, we were talking about something two weeks ago. We were. Uh, what are we going to talk about today then? Well, I think we'll carry on with that. What we were talking about, and we're in the midst of a series called The Diet of Illusion, which uh, we kind of liked as a, as a overall title because it, it raises a lot of issues. And uh, we started looking at this is all sort of as ways really of defining the modern age. I mean, it's not that we haven't had historically since the beginning of human cultures around the world, some sense of make-believe, some sense of illusion. I, I often call it the sensual suspicion, sort of the paranoid idea that uh, things aren't what they seem. You know, there's more to the picture than meets the eye. That's a very strange idea when you think about it. No other animal or creature that we know of has that thought, which I think is, is a direct consequence of language. It's a suspicion. 
and it's a stance to reality that is very odd. It's the source of our greatest achievements. The fact that we have looked behind and below the surface, that we haven't just accepted things on face value, but it, it does haunt us. And remember, we had an earlier series about a sense of being haunted. Um, but with the Diet of Illusions series, we've been looking really at it in terms of the media, the rise of mass communications in the mid-19th century, that pervasive influence that's been building up. And we looked at the news media. We looked at advertising. And our, our, our argument there, which um, I've gotten some good feedback from people on that, and we thank you very much for uh, for any feedback we get. We really enjoy that. It really adds. Um, at the end, David, I do have a letter from, from one of our listeners about an, an episode previous to, to all this. Um, mm -hmm. But we looked at advertising as being really the force behind mass communications in the modern age, that it's not simply some unfortunate necessity, a word from our sponsors, you know, that really is the word. That is the message. It, it is, it has been all advertising. And I, I think that there is an element there that is very, very important to another topic that we uh, devoted a series to is the idea of progress. We ended that um, multi-part series with a look at social progress, particularly progressivism within our own time right now, woke culture, cancel culture, uh, et cetera. But one of the questions, I think, is how woke can anything be when we are embedded so fully within capitalism, uh, mm -hmm. within a commercial mm -hmm. framework? And mm -hmm. I, I think that, that what we might want to sort of now look at in terms of media is um, having looked at advertising in a kind of formal, literal sense of Tony the Tiger and... Um, Trust the man with the star and uh, McDonald's, I'm loving it, and, you know, Coca-Cola and all that. We might look at, at this weird new category which has emerged um, of the influencers. And mm -hmm. I, I, I've known from my students that this is a really big part of their lives. And that these people who are often their peers are also their heroes and celebrity authority figures, in a sense. Yep. Yep. And I, I just think it's fascinating because it, it really, uh, it, it is obviously an enormous commercial deal. Um, according to Instagram, their, just their segment of the influencer market is worth $2.3 billion last Oof. year. Goodness um, gracious. Now, that's an awful lot of money for what might well be described as a completely amateur-based uh, talent pool to begin with. It's certainly not amateur now. I mean, these people are making an enormous amounts of money. Um, we're, we're talking like out of the top 20 of them, all of them are multimillionaires. So they're also mm -hmm. sort of entrepreneurial heroes, capitalist heroes, in the midst of this woke, progressive sort of culture, I find that absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm not sure my heroes uh, at that age of, you know, 18 to 25, if they weren't also capitalist heroes to some extent, otherwise, how would I have heard about them? But I certainly didn't identify with them in that sense. You know, it right. didn't seem to right. me that 
um, that I didn't relate to them because they were uh, successful in commercial terms. That wasn't how I packaged it. So those are some things to, to maybe unpack. And then I think we can look at, I suppose, with the arrival of gas, that, that there is this sense of, well, here is another generation, a very interesting uh, generation coming about during the COVID period of how all mm-hmm. this is going to take shape in, you know, I mean, two decades will go by pretty quickly. Um, where will this lead us? So we've got a few things to talk about, but the influencer market is kind of where I thought we should go to having looked at um, some of those hilarious ads of DDT is good for me and um, doctors smoking camels. And, you know, I think that, (laughs) you know, the point of that (laughs) is that fashions change so much. Um, And maybe we're not prepared for the speed at which fashions change, you know? A hundred percent. This is a very great topic for me to talk about because it's something that I've currently been, it's been a bit of a bugbear for me. So my interpretation of it and my read on it is through the lens of Twitter. And there is a a cast of people uh, that I call the blue checks, right? And they're called the blue checks because Twitter has verified their account. So they are Sometimes writers have a blue check next to their name. Often politicians do, celebrities, musicians, people like that, right? They're basic, They're people who have influence, who have contacted Twitter or been contacted by Twitter and have been awarded their, their little badge. And the blue check itself holds a lot of sway if you sort of step out of line too much the first step before you get banned is that they take your your blue check away right so you're no longer okay 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 well look just before you go i just want to make this Uh sounds so fascinating and is Mm -hmm. is is cryptically magical and interesting to me i just want to make sure i understand and i I bet some of our listeners want want a little bit of clarification too so Mm -hmm. this uh imprimatur or certification if you like is this something that individuals pursue or is it something that twitter awards and only twitter can award it only twitter can award it And in the earlier days of Twitter, it was much easier to get one. I have author friends who are both successful and not successful, and some of the not successful ones managed to wrangle a blue check out of it because they had maybe a podcast, something like that, that they were able to simply send a note to Twitter tech support, and they were sort of given a a blue check. They were handing them out like crazy back in the day. Of course, at the time, (laughs) yeah, at the time, of course, right, I was too cool for the blue check. I didn't need to pursue that. Might have been helpful, might not have, who knows. So, for example, um, my friend Jordan, who writes for television, he has a blue check. Um, My friend Adam Caesar, who has a very successful uh, YA book out right now, he has a blue check. Um, And then some people who I won't embarrass them by saying their names because I'm pointing out that they're not that successful. They also have the blue check. It is pursued now. It's much more difficult to get, but people are people are jockeying for that position. They're trying to, to prove themselves. What does that, I mean, as you've described it, in order that for that to have value, people have to understand that 
that system. But does it actually, in an algorithm sense, help? Does it give these people more reach? Does it, it does it increase their influence in any practical, you know, mechanical sense? It's hard to say. Twitter is very cagey about how its algorithms work. I would say in most cases, yes, that it does put you in front of more people. However, there are check marks out there. Um, depending on who you ask, they could be part of sort of astroturfed, shady movements that don't really get any engagement at all because their, their blue check development is inorganic. It was sort of handed to them. So the, the problem with answering that question definitively is that it's, it's hidden behind veils of Twitter secrecy. But right. overall, I think it's safe to say yes. You have, if you have um, a blue check, the algorithm may or may not help you, but what it does do is tap into the monkey brain of people who are reading your tweets, right? I've, been, I've found myself being guilty of this before, reading tweets that I both agree and disagree with, sort of giving it undue influence. Does that make sense? You know, you think like, oh, this person must have something interesting to say. They have a check mark by their name. Right. Okay, now, but just to be clear, the, you mentioned yeah. the, the check mark in regard, really starting at least with writers and artists. Presumably, these check marks go out to other people, you know, politicians, yeah. uh entertainers like The Rock or J-Lo, yes. you know? I, yes. I, I assume J-Lo's got the blue check, right? Um, Correct. Correct. And so here's the thing, right? This, this was important. I should have mentioned this at the beginning. The original conception of the blue check was to prove that you are validly who you say you are, right? So yeah. the, check, the check mark separates The Rock from The Rock's unofficial fan account, right? Right. And so it is kind of funny that some writers who have books that nobody's read somehow need to be validated in that way. But it has evolved from a sort of simple, I am who I say I am. I have validated my account into a, into a, a status symbol, basically. Uh, Instagram has check marks now, too, for, for brands that warrant it. I think Facebook does, too. You know, it just it never ceases to amaze me of just the irony of the two of the great issues of our time you know, identity politics and identity theft, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it, we're really, it, I mean, it's not funny actually of how paranoid and, and sort of tragic that anxiety is of, of, I mean, it's beyond Kafka, really, that sense of, of proving yourself. Um, and some of the things that, that go on, are absolutely quite ludicrous. Have you known? I've I've known a couple of people, and this is not this is not an ageist thing at all. This can happen at any time, but you can uh, be suddenly well found to be dead by mm -hmm. say uh, the social security system, and you have to validate that you're not dead. Well, I mean yeah. that really is a dreamlike scenario, isn't it? That's just that's really quite strange. And if you go to validate your identity in Nevada, here's what's really, I mean, you can get around this if someone has any sense, right? Mm -hmm. But if you hit a bureaucratic person who really should be replaced by uh, an AI system very quickly or as quickly as possible, 
and is rigidly mechanical of a brain. They will mm-hmm. say that they have no power to assert the reality, the validity, the genuine, authentic nature of your identity, like a birth certificate, uh, a passport. They, they can, they can, they're okay to notarize the fact that a signature looks the same, but they can't say authoritatively with the power and imprimatur of the state that, yes, that looks to me like a, an official U.S. passport. They can't do that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, right. I mean, we have created this amazing nightmare of, you know, confirm it's you. I mean, you go yeah, online. You get the, the robot thing, right? Prove yeah. you're not a robot. I saw a tweet once that was great. It was like, pro- like the person said, um, prove that I'm not a robot. You're the robot. You're a robot. And you're asking me to prove that I'm not a robot. You prove that you're not a robot. I thought that was, that really kind of got to it, doesn't it? Oh, it's just, you know, it, and it, the thing that is really <laughs> sort of disappointing about this is that all of the great speculative writers, the real science fiction writer, futurists, there have been some interesting people in the past who were on to this so far before the reality. And all their sort of uh, predictive scenarios, and even when they're totally nightmarish, we're just so much more interesting than what we actually have. You know, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. thing of like, we've got to confirm it's you. We're going to text you a code. You know, it's just like, right. no, just let me into my bank account. Stop yeah. all this foolishness. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, or think about it this way. You mentioned proving that you're not dead. Um, you're familiar with uh, Matt Gates, the representative from Florida who turned out to be a sex pest. Are you familiar yeah, with this story? Yeah. Well, imagine being uh, Matt Gates G A instead of G A E T Z, Matt Gates G A T E Z, uh, who has spent the past few months responding to death threats on his Twitter account uh, to let them know that I think he's like I, I think he's an accountant or something. Uh, he's he's not he's not the right guy, but anything that he posts gets this onslaught of death threats and hate. Because, because he has the unfortunate, you know, his name is almost spelled the same as this uh, this represent this this kind of uh, pedophile representative, right? That wouldn't that be an absolute nightmare? My, there's a David Osborne, who is a uh, piano player for the presidents, right? And I remember being on Facebook ten years ago, and he actually messaged me, and he, he was like, he was like, hey, we have the same name. And I said, that's true. What do, what do you do? And he's like, oh, I'm about to go play uh, the piano for George Bush. And I was like, okay, well, we, we don't have to be friends at all. Uh, <laughs> kind of like cut him <laughs> off there. But, you know, the, the identity thing now is so, so strange. And that also brings up the, the mob, right? The, the, the Twitter mob, right? So on the other side, the other dark side to the dark side of the influencer are the mobs who listen to them. Right. And sort of how careful people have to be now, uh, because if you happen to say something that leads to, oh, I don't know, an an insurrection, uh, you can be held accountable for that. Right. So there's there's all these things that we just we don't have rules and laws and experience with. And it just it's all happening so fast. Nobody knows 
what to call anything anymore. Well, I think it's terrifying to think about some of the real people, to use that weird expression. Uh, I say in my textbook, three most contentious words in English in the modern age, real, natural, and equal. Those three. There are, there, there's a full suite of ten, but those are the top. Those are my top three. Listeners can think about their own top three. But this real people thing behind the avatars, behind the you know emojis, behind the, the fake names and the handles and all of this deception, think about who a lot of the, the Twitter mob, a lot of the, the, the real serious substantive weight of social media, and weight may, might be a, an interesting choice of words there. Um, think about what those people are really like. You know, mm-hmm. who who have the time and have the inclination, and you'd have to say, I mean, that my uh, one of my psychology friends does a profile on this, and and actually AI systems are quite capable now of developing some pretty interesting diagnoses. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, massive self-esteem problems. That that's a guarantee. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. absolutely apparent quite a bit of atmospheric or what Freud would call oceanic anger, you know, uh, free. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Quite a bit of that. Um, and so, I mean, when we talk about how people become radicalized in some political sense, well, it's not actually that far to go because you've got two great prerequisites pretty substantially in place, self-esteem crises and Mm -hmm. some degree of unfocused, but nevertheless, uh, fairly pervasive anger. And right. I think that it, it doesn't take much to, uh, I mean, think about that in combustion terms. I mean, what is, what is combustion? What is starting a fire? Well, it's three elements, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. it's fuel, you know, it's ignition, and it's oxygen. And so we've got, we're already starting in a pretty good place to, to create mob behavior. You know, and there are no consequences. That's the third element. You know, there's a freedom from consequence for the masked uh, attacker. Um, mm. Mm. But, I mean, one of the things I, I think I've, I've spoken a couple of times about, I am getting a little bit interested in the AI media analytics thing because I feel like I need to make my peace with it. But also because I know these interesting linguistic people who are using the tools and they have now done some really massive crunching of comments left on sites, CNN, Twitter, on and on and on and on. And it, it is graphable in, in mm-hmm. really, really clear demonstrative terms about the level of anger, the level yeah. of aggression, the level yeah. of dissatisfied tension in our society – Oh, since 2010, that is, you can look at that in visual terms, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I think that's mm-hmm. just, that's absolutely breathtaking to really know that it's not just, you know, our intuition or, you know, I have a funny feeling that things are getting a little tense in our cult. Well, <laughs> you know, you're right. <laughs> There's yeah, a reason you think just, that. Yeah, we're just reading the room. I've noticed that in the comment sections of some uh, thought influencers that I follow on Twitter, um, 
it's it would be a bit of a stretch to call them philosophers because they don't have the the depth i think i think in order to be a philosopher you have to write books that's just that's my little criteria for it but so these thought influencers people who i think are very intelligent and interesting and who comment on current events particularly if they're women uh the comments are all men and they are all furious right even if what the woman has said is relatively innocuous right but it's not just men it's also uh uh women as well so what i'm saying is that i've noticed that women influencers get it worse from both ends basically they get it worse overall uh with the exception of a few men who who pop who pop into mind but there's there's something about a, a woman kind of stepping out of line with the consensus and kind of maybe saying something that's a bit uncomfortable that just turns the mob on right they want they want blood they want to burn her alive well you know there's so many things that uh that that are interesting about i mean the mob i mean that that is an idea as a word i think it's interesting that we sort of use that for a time relative to the mafia i think going back to people like emerson and thoreau i mean way back in the 1840s as one of you know his earlier comments about the rise of mass communications and its effect at street level in small towns in america emerson said now we are a mob i mean think about that for a moment that's well more than a century ago that's mm -hmm. really really getting out in front of the curve i mean what right. would he have to say about today when when mob actually is uh, according to uh you know, computational linguistics is one of is really on the rise as a word and has been enormously on the increase uh, since the turn of the century. But since 2010, uh, even more so. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I, I think back to what kind of uh, it seems almost whimsical sort of now. Uh, it, it was, you know, the flash mob idea. Remember when that was kind of a, a thing? You know, you, you, yeah. it was a sort of celebration of, well, I think cell phones for starters, because you needed to be able to communicate with people instantly. And you'd organize a, a mass group of people, say, in Central uh, Station, you know, in, in New York. And you'd, you'd have, okay, we're all going to do this at one time in, in Grand Central at, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning or something. And that seemed kind of interesting. But I remember at the time thinking, who would really go along with that? What are we celebrating? That The fact that we can collaborate together in a kind of, uh, I mean, you couldn't say it was really positive, but you, you'd say, well, it wasn't negative. It wasn't like, let's go smash some windows of Starbucks or something or set fire no, that, to the that federal courthouse. That was going to come later. Yeah. Yeah. That's where things are at <laughs> now. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm ready to roll on that at any time because I've been I've been speaking to some friends who are in the midst of those kinds of of cities, those neighborhoods where that's happening, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, they're they're pretty damn tired of the whole thing. Oh, um, listen, listen! I found a tweet that I thought was was so awesome, so perfect for the whole mob kind of thing, and uh, it basically juxtaposes two pictures, right? And the first picture make sure that I get this right, 
it is a building that's on fire in Minneapolis. And it says in bold type, a new world from the ashes of the old. And it's uh, it's made out in these sepia tones. It's from uh, Crime Think, which is an anarchist publication, right? And, you know, the fire is stretching up into the sky. You can see a few stars out there. It looks really cool. However, the building that they're showing on fire is a 198-unit affordable housing development. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. I mean, it's not funny, but it is. I mean, it's just... Yes. Yes. You know. You see, so you see what I'm. You see what I'm getting at there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I. I wonder if it. I mean, let's let's maybe say not humor, but the the bitter irony of that. I suspect would be totally lost on on many of those people involved. You know, it just mm-hmm. it it's mm-hmm. the, it goes back to our uh, you know discussion of, of social progress. You know, certainly in terms of the intent versus the result. You know, and not being able to take responsibility uh, for the result. But with the idea of the mob, you know, I, I wonder, like, what are your thoughts on the connection with, you know, I've always thought that one of the most uh, seminal horror films that I've ever seen, and I think a lot of people agree with this, is the, the original Night of the Living Dead, you know, mm-hmm. um, which has an interesting interracial sort of subtext. I think it was out in front of its... Uh, out in front of many curves, actually. But then think about how the whole zombie thing, the zombie yeah. apocalypse. I mean, I, I've I just got so sick of of that. I can't even I can't even talk when I yeah. when I think about right. zombies. Um, but don't you think that's an example of almost getting overly fascinated with a metaphor for our time to the point where we don't even see that it is no longer just a metaphor. It's literally true. It is literally true. A movie that I think is a better example, though, is actually The Wicker Man. Um, the the original? I, I just saw the original. Yeah. I just saw the original last what a, night. What a weird sink. What a weird sink. That is yeah. totally weird. Yeah. Oh. yeah. But you, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. I though, do. Then. The end of it. The, the inability to rationalize with the cult, the, the necessity of the detective being burned in the wicker man. And uh, what does he say to the guy at the end? He says, you'll, you'll be next. Come, you'll be next. Right. The, yeah. Not eventually. Uh, he said, if the crops fail again, they'll come for you next year. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that I think rather than a kind of um, a kind of mind, mindless shuffling, right? Because the image of the crowd of zombies that we've seen, you know, a hundred million times now. Uh, I, I, I think it's too animalistic and lacking in uh, a sort of direction of what they're trying to do. I think something like something just like the the cold machinations of of a mob that, by the way, uh, believes that it's good, right? Isn't mindless, but actually thinks that it's doing what is necessary in order to you know, have, have a good harvest. Right. So anytime I see that kind of stuff going on, I think of that, that burning wicker man. And I, I think that that is when the mob gets really chilling, especially when it's combined. If so, if the, the two movies that I think about actually are, uh, the wicker man and something like Rosemary's baby. Right. Yeah. Um, that's another good one. Yeah. 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 Where, you know, there's this apartment complex, 
the whole idea of everybody being in on it, right? So on the one hand, that to me works as a great metaphor for the powers that be for the government, right? And the, the idea of them kind of seeding this woman with a demon child and, you know, nursing it through to, to, um, to birth uh, really feels like an apt metaphor for what the shadowier figures in our government are doing. And then on the other hand, you have uh, the Wicker Man, where, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's people who are disconnected from the powers that be, but who have been successfully influenced, right, through these 280-character tweets and Instagram videos and, uh, you know, advertisements on television and even music and movies, right, um, to think that what they're doing is, is right. That's, that's where our mob is today. Well, there's so many things. You know, just a couple of points. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the, the apartment complex in uh, Rosemary's Baby. Of course, that's no ordinary apartment. That's the Dakota buildings, you know, on the Upper West Side, you know, right overlooking Central Park, at least the exteriors. Of course, that's where John Lennon lived in a lot of really heavy weight. So it's symbolic of some really, really interesting sort of creepy aspects of celebrity. Uh, I don't know, you know, one of the things with the, the Wicker Man and, and the, the first one with Robert Woodward was so, so good and Christopher Lee, uh, the second one is just not worth seeing at all. But uh, for anyone who's not pursued the Golden Bow, uh, George Fraser's just monument of, of literary-based sort of anthropology uh, about these great traditions of sacrifice and fertility rights in uh, predominantly European culture. But it, he, he, that was the first time I ever heard of, of the Wicker Man idea ages ago. And I, I really loved it. And so I wanted to see the movie very, very much. And I still think it holds up beautifully. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the other thing, I, I well, that connects back to a book which we've got to at some point. We, we mentioned earlier, Violence and the Sacred by Rene Girard. I was about to say, did six months later we finally get back to Rene <laughs> yeah. Girard? We, we've, we've got to, we've got to. I, I, think that we, I think that that will just need to sort of percolate through all these sort of issues. But the other thing that I thought of, which um, is an interesting sort of very manageable topic of because uh, Woodward, when he's about to be burned alive in this giant effigy, uh, is cursing. And, you know, the curse of, of someone who's dying has this magical sort of potency to it. I mean, you can just go, yeah, OK, I'm, I'm not going to really take that seriously. But on the other hand, that's where curses really come from in having that kind of magical superstitious power to reach beyond death in the grave to, you know, affect our future. And I think cursing is a really, uh, as opposed to just swearing, I mean a real curse, you know, a curse mm-hmm. on someone, uh, a, right. a dark magical spell. Um, mm-hmm. But that's really weird to mention because I just, I, for no apparent reason, I saw, I wanted to just watch the Wicker Man. And I did like seeing Britt Eklund dancing around naked. I think that's, that needs to be mm-hmm. said. Um, mm-hmm. But I can't think of the Wicker Man without thinking of Burning Man, the festival mm-hmm. in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada, which yeah. has been canceled. Uh, they've decided they're not going to hold again. it again this coming yeah. up. Yeah. 
Right. Um, which I think is wise to maybe make an announcement because so many people do preparations of, of artwork and et cetera so far right. in advance. But I have very mixed feelings about Burning Man. There, there are parts of it that I just love and think are wonderful. And then there are other aspects of it that I really have reservations about. So maybe we could flag that to another. I think not just yeah. talking about that particular event it's in itself, but more what it's an allegory, uh, a cultural allegory for, um, mm-hmm. and, and how what's good about it is is so invigorating and cool, and also what's kind of become corrupted and sort of degenerate and decadent and maybe just commercialized about it. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that might be something uh, else to look at. Um, well, look, I think for when we, uh, with the influencer staff, I, I think we could maybe touch on that next time and then go to what I wanted to look at, I, I guess is the beginning of, uh, it's a segue into another possible series on the cult of celebrity and mm-hmm. and how that manifests. I think there are a couple of interesting examples of of how that has worked in in more historic terms and then how that starts to work in terms of the rise of mass communications and how mass communications and celebrity and therefore the cult of celebrity go hand in hand. So what does that sound like to you as, as sort of a place to sort of move to to evolve kind of the diet of illusion into a discussion of the cult of celebrity? Um, yeah. No, there's a lot perfect. of ground there to, to cover. It's some interesting stuff. Um, and I'm still just blown away by all these TikTok uh, kids. And I'm going to use that term kids um, consciously, but, but not condescendingly because – they are, frankly, kids. Some of them are real teenagers. Um, right, right. And, and some of what they're doing as influencers um, is predicated on their age. Um, and it's, it, it, it's a fascinating new form of marketing. You know, mm-hmm. it, it really is. So we've got kind of, I think, for our next show, sort of a hybrid or a transitional thing between the diet of illusion and a more direct... Uh, inquiry, interrogation into the notion of of celebrity, which think about the, the root of that word, you know, celebrity and celebration and look a little bit deeper. I encourage people to to always go another step in, in reviewing definitions um, because there are other layers to that that are very peculiar um, mm. and that just slip right by us, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a great chat. Before we go, you sent a very interesting email uh, that ties back into our previous episode with advertising and sloganeering, and it is a list of Coca-Cola slogans. And your idea, which I love, would be to end this particular episode by trading back and forth and going through the years of Coca-Cola slogans. You, re- you want to do that still? Yeah, yeah. And and so what we've got, some of them last for a few years. You know, the advertising industry that they support, uh, and this is, of course, one of the key brands that built 
the mega advertising industry that became uh, known as Madison Avenue um, in the same way that Hollywood isn't really Hollywood and Wall Street is only partly actually a street in New York. Um, so it's an interesting group, but we start in 1886 and we'll go up to 2020 and we'll alternate, right, David? Do you want yep, to take... That sounds good. Do you want to go odd or even? How about I go... Uh, let's do... E- I'll do even this time. Okay, okay. I'll kick it off. Think of this as being... This is like a moment of advertising genius, okay? Mm-hmm. Drink Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola revives and sustains the great national temperance beverage. Good till the last drop. Whenever you see an arrow, think of Coca-Cola. Three million a day. Thirst knows no season. Enjoy thirst. Refresh yourself. Six million a day. It had to be good to get where it is. Pure as sunlight. Around the corner from anywhere. The pure drink of natural flavors. The pause that refreshes. Ice cold sunshine. America's favorite moment. The best friend thirst ever had. Thirst asks nothing more. Coca-Cola goes along. Coca-Cola has the taste thirst goes for. (laughs) Whoever you are, whatever you do, think of good ice-cold Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is Coke! (laughs) The only thing like Coca-Cola is Coca-Cola itself. How about a Coke? Coke means Coca-Cola. The passport to refreshment. Coke knows no season. Where there's Coke, there's an ice cold. Coca-Cola. Along the highway to anywhere. What you want is a Coke. For people on the go. Coca-Cola makes things taste better. The sign of good taste. The cold, crisp taste of Coke. Coca-Cola refreshes you best. Things go better with Coke. It's the real thing. Look up, America. Coke adds life. Have a Coke and a smile. America's real choice. Red, white, and you. (laughs) Can't beat the feeling. Can't beat the real thing. Always Coca-Cola. Always and only Coca-Cola. Born to be red. Coca-Cola. Always the real thing. Enjoy. Life tastes good. Real. Make it real. The Coke side of life. Open happiness. Taste the feeling. Together tastes better. Be open like never before. (laughs) You know, and some of those are much more famous than others, but 
it's very interesting. The one, like for instance, the one that that first one that really grabbed me, the pause that refreshes. That was the first Coke slogan that I thought really penetrated into uh, American culture and possibly world culture as an expression. That was the the advertising slogan in a year that was kind of famous for some things. 1929, the Great Depression begins. You know, mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. go better with Coke. 1963, think of those white picket fences and those lawnmowers working away, you know? Mm-hmm. There's some really, really interesting. Red, white, and you in 1986. I mean, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I remember the theme song, you know, always Coca-Cola from 1993. And then in 1999, when it's Enjoy, that's the one that really sticks out in my head. So I would have been 13 then. And uh, yeah, I've just always thought of uh, enjoy. I didn't really notice that life tastes good or real or any of that stuff was was a slogan. I just always thought enjoy, right? Well, I'd like to teach the world to sing, you know? I mean, think of all yeah. this. <laughs> Remember, and that was like the great closing out of, of, of the Mad Men series. You know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it is amazing how powerful the Coca-Cola brand has been, uh, and it raises the question, you know, what is a brand? We forget that brand comes from, you know, cattle branding, really. I mean, no one wants mm-hmm. a brand. That's like an S&N club or cattle ranching, you know? And yeah, suddenly right. we've, we accept it as this weird psychological thing now. Um, but really, have a look at the initial, um, well, it's still the famous um, accursive treatment of Coke. Coca-Cola, both words. Mm. That was the standardized uh, form of, of cursive writing taught in schools for years. It was you that level recently, of penetration. You remember recently they've just started putting people's names on the Coke. Yes. That's, that's interesting magic, right? You can get oh. one that's, that says like Susan on it. It's very, very strange. And for really uh, the most amazing uh, contrast. You know, we talked about there have been many famous artists and writers who have uh, done time in the advertising world. Well, one of them was James Dickey, who actually wrote on the Coca-Cola account in Atlanta. I, he's one of my favorite poets. I think, um, I think his stuff is very, very special still for all his faults. But uh, he wrote one of his best poems called The Heaven of Animals uh, while at work in an Atlanta high-rise surrounded by Coca-Cola executives in the 1960s, which to me sort of sounds like FBI guys in Quantico, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. that kind of, of weirdo environment. I encourage listeners to uh, have a look at the beautiful, one of his most famous poems, the heaven of animals. That's what he did in the midst of corporate capitalist Coca-Cola. Uh, I mean, ha- there are only a few brands at that level. I'd say McDonald's and Disney. Uh, maybe, I guess, the new computer company, Apple. Who else is in that sort of one? No, almost no one, really. Yeah, almost. They- I think you named all of them that I could think of. Um 
maybe uh maybe some airlines uh you know but uh other than that i think that's pretty well you said disney um yeah besides entertainment things like that i'm, I'm trying to think of anything that's really that ubiquitous and uh i think that, I think that <laughs> Ni- nike maybe nike nike uh, well look here's the test i just thought of this i did not think of this previous but this is true uh, we talked earlier about, uh, in an episode past, about Colin Turnbull, the anthropologist, uh, and his wonderful book, The Forest People, about pygmies in the Congo region of, of Central Africa. And there is one group of people there, they are on the cusp of being officially pygmies in anthropology terms, but they are, they are a very remote uh, group of people, and they have tried to stay remote, but they have gotten a reputation and now actually get money. This is still happening. Westerners go there and ask them, what have you heard? Do you know anything about this? And like key points of recognition that have penetrated their very remote world, Mickey Mouse, Mickey as an image, uh, Charles Manson got through for some reason. That's real fame. That's real celebrity. <laughs> And, mm-hmm. of course, the, the number one on their list is Coca-Cola, or wow. was. I'm not sure if that's true anymore. But imagine this, this strange sort of semi-pygmy group of, like, the ultimate market research, you know, test audience. Mm-hmm. 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 Right, right. Well, I think that uh, on that note, something to think about. So everybody who's listening, thanks so much for listening. Please do uh, subscribe to the show, nocountrypod.podbean.com. Please share it on social media. If you go to the JDO show, I'll put a link in there. Uh, Kelby Losack did a audiobook reading of my novel, Black Gum, that I put up for oh, free. Oh, cool. So I will link to that. Uh, anything else you want to add, Chris? No. Um, we. I'll, I'll save the letter from... Uh are one of our listeners for next time, because I think it's an ongoing topic. It's about the the influence of capitalism on social trends and on deeper cultural psychological behavior that, uh, that I think that is something that we want to address. And maybe the suggestion is not to to address it uh, directly unto itself, that it's too big and um, kind of pervasive that it needs to be sort of dialed up from time to time. So we'll, we'll leave that okay. as a carryover to next time. But please, yes, everyone, thank you for listening. And, uh, yeah, share your feedback. We're, this is really about building community, and we appreciate knowing what, what clicks. Yep. All right. So until next time, be open like never before. <laughs>